Thank you for joining us for a message from the Christian Fellowship Church of Kandu, North Dakota. Please visit our website for more information about our church at kanducfc.com. So here we are in uh, part eight of our series in James. We're going to begin the fourth chapter this morning. We'll look at the first 12 verses. Uh, just as a little recap, last week we looked at the wisdom that comes from heaven. And we know that when we operate with this kind of wisdom, it helps us to sow peace in the church. Peace amongst believers is kind of how that passage ended. But if you've been a part of a church for a short time or a long time, we know that churches are not perfect places filled with perfect people. There are conflicts, there is animosity, there are politics and all sorts of other things that threaten the unity that we're meant to have with God. As long as churches have existed, there have been differences of opinions, misunderstandings, and disagreements. And we can even see that pattern, unfortunately, taking place in Scripture. In Acts 4, it, it, the, Paul writes that, the, or sorry, Luke writes, that the believers were of one mind and one heart. Man, that sounds pretty wonderful, doesn't it? But just a chapter later in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church and are struck dead by the Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, so I guess they weren't of one mind and one heart anymore. And then in Acts 6, it says that one group in the church complained about another, saying that they were being treated unfairly, and there was favoritism going on, because one people had a certain kind of belief, or a certain kind of uh, cultural background, as opposed to another. And they thought that they were being overlooked, simply because they were what they were called Hellenistic Jews, or Greek cultural Jews, compared to the, the, Hebrew, the Hebrew Jews. So there was some conflict there as well. Pastor James, in this letter, he understands that the church isn't always of one mind and one heart, and not always united in everything they do. So, James begins chapter 4 with another question. Yes, another question. I love it. And he faces this issue of disunity head on. And I think we're going to be surprised about what he says about it. I know I was a little bit. So let's, let's pray one more time here, and then we're going to turn to God's word. Lord Jesus, I love that your church has an absolute clear-cut designation that we are supposed to be people of one mind and one heart. We're supposed to be operating in unity, surrendered to your will in everything we do. But Jesus, we are people. We are broken people. And instead of yielding to your spirit, Lord, we walk in the flesh we're all guilty of that, and I know I am too, for sure. And Lord, it just grieves my heart, as I'm sure it does yours, to know that you gave us a wonderful design, and for some reason, we're rebelling against it. Father, just forgive us, please. We confess to you our sin of rebellion. We confess to you our sin of disunity. And I pray that today, we would learn how to prevent that from happening. And that you would teach us, Lord, how to walk together, shoulder to shoulder, with our eyes fixed on you. Amen. Okay, so James 4 starts with verse 1. Surprise, surprise. And that verse says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? I think that's an amazing question. Normally, when, when there's an argument or a disagreement, we would tend to think that it comes from two differing points of view that exist between at least two people, right? That's where conflict comes, comes from. 
But James teaches us here right at the beginning that fighting and quarreling actually happen because of a battle that's going on inside of us between our own conflicting desires. You see, all of us have desires on the inside that are competing for control of how we're going to live our lives. Paul talks about exactly this in Romans 7, starting at verse 22, where he says, I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Ah, okay, so there's two things going on. Two desires are fighting, competing, battling for control of Paul's life. And we're all in the same boat, right? One, one of these desires is pleasing to God and one is rebellious against God. This is important for us to understand because all of us are in, these, are in this position. None of us are exempt from, from fighting this battle that's taking place from within. In 2 Peter 2, 1, uh, verse 19, Peter says that people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And that speaks to these desires or what's battling within us. They're desiring to master us, to control our lives and to set the direction of our decisions, right? So when a desire controls us, it becomes our master, whether it is good or evil. As long as we live on this earth, we are never free from this conflict between good and evil, battling for control of our lives. Paul also says in Galatians 5, that the Holy Spirit that God has placed within us is battling against our sinful nature. And these two forces are continually fighting each other so that you are never free to carry out your good intentions. Wouldn't it be marvelous if the only thing that ever existed within us was the power of the Holy Spirit so that all of our good intentions could be done without any hurdles or obstacles that the sinful nature throws in our path. But unfortunately, that's not reality. There is a battle and we're not free from just doing the good things that the Holy Spirit inside of us is directing us to do. And this is why being a faithful Christian means learning to identify which desires inside of us are in agreement with God and which desires are leading us to sin against God. We have to identify those. Otherwise, how would we ever avoid the bad and commit to the good, right? And that's why maturing as a Christian, or that's what maturing as a Christian is all about. Becoming more aware of what's pleasing to God and more consistent in choosing it. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So our struggle is not against one another. It's not against other people. It says here, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, so that's where our focus ought to be in this conflict. We are battling probably more within ourselves than we will realize against spiritual forces of evil that are propping up the sinful desires within us, causing us to fight and quarrel and bring disunity to the family of God. So when two people or two groups or two factions within a spiritual community battle against each other, It's actually a result of us giving in to the the flesh and giving in to that sinful nature. Because if we desire peace, we'll work for it. Yes, there will be disagreements and we're going to have to share opinions and say, well, I think this is what the Bible says. Help me figure this out. What do you think? You know how you have more experience than me. And we look at it together and we find the truth based on this, not based on my opinions or yours, right? And that's where unity can come into play. 
When we realize that the battle is not against one another, but against that spiritual force that's threatening within. Describing these two desires that battle within, James writes in verse 2, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. So the results of the battle in here, in our hearts, always affect the kind of experiences that we're going to have out here in the physical world, right? James says an unmet desire, which here is also, if you read the the definition, it's a lustful desire or a self-serving desire, results in killing. Now, James could be talking about actual murder, or he could be intending what 1 John 3.15 says, anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart, and you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. Nonetheless, when, we, when we're willing to fight and quarrel because we want so badly what we think we deserve, and we're willing to do anything to anyone, that's the kind of attitude that is condemned in Scripture, as we can see right here. So what about coveting? Do not covet is one of the Ten Commandments, right? To covet something means to jealously desire something with envy, hatred, or anger burning in our hearts. When we covet something, quarreling and fighting are just the means that we're willing to go to in order to get what we covet, what we want out of a bad motivation. It's hard to hear this kind of teaching about lustful thoughts and desires, coveting, and knowing that James is talking about the church. He's not talking about, you know, a fight that erupts at a softball game. He's not talking about people who are overserved and, and get into each other's hair at the bar. He's talking about the church. Doesn't that just break your heart? Man, like, it's, it's, it's too bad that we need this kind of correction. But I'm glad that we have it as well so that we can avoid going deeper into the wrong direction. So, going a little further here, I, I don't think that James is saying that this is only something that we're going to deal with in the secular world, but it certainly is something we need to pay attention to here in the church. The interesting thing is, at the end of that verse, James says, you do not have because you do not ask God. I find it really interesting that this comes after him condemning lustful desires and coveting. Because what we covet and what we desire is he, is he, you know, we put our focus on those things. Those are bad things to covet or desire, right? And then James says, well, you don't have because you do not ask God. So is he saying, well, you don't have what you covet and desire out of selfish motives and bad ambitions because you didn't ask God for those things? Is that what he's saying? I'm not sure. Or is James saying that the things that we desire and covet are not what God is interested in giving us? You have to really be very careful here because in this verse, we take that last phrase and we just treat it all by itself on its own. But James is, is writing this in a letter. He's completing a thought here. So I think when I read this and I studied this this week, I hear James saying that we don't have what we want because our internal desires don't always line up with God's desires for us. Okay? Because think of it this way, if we only desired what is good and pleasing to God, we would always consistently go to God and ask to receive that, right? Because God is a giver of good gifts. We learned that in James 1.17. 
But because there's this battle within us, we sometimes want what is evil. Or we want to use maybe what God intended to be good for an evil purpose. In those moments, we don't necessarily go to God all the time because we just operate in the flesh. I see it, I want it, I'm taking it, right? That's, that's the attitude that we have. And even if we do go to God and we do ask him for those things, sometimes we are misguided in coming to a good God and asking for something bad that we want with selfishness or something that disagrees with God's word, his nature or his will. So I think that's what James is getting at when he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. We don't ask him for what is good. And even if we do, sometimes we ask with the wrong motives. And that's why in verse 3, James says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that, they, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Man, that verse I feel is such a tell-all for what we've seen already. It's, it's such a revelation that here in this moment, oh, the motives, I forgot about that. What God really cares about at the end of the day is our heart. Friends, we always, always, always need to remember that Jesus cares about our heart, our motives, our reasons, and our desires. We may be able to mask our bad motives by asking for something good or doing something good, but we can't fool God. He knows the heart of the matter. He knows our heart. You know, an example of this that I thought about is, is maybe someone says, and we would all pray this prayer on, on some levels, Jesus, I need some help financially. Would you please... Just help me secure my finances or, or help me to make more money. I think that when God hears those prayers, and we might not always hear him say this, but he probably is thinking, why? Which is a great question. <laughs> why are you asking me for more money, Jeff, right? And you know, if I have bad motives, I might say, well, because Lord, I work hard. I deserve it. Plus, you know, I have a reputation to maintain. I mean, these clothes, this car that I drive, it's not impressing anyone, Lord, so I need some money. Just chill out and help me out here. Or maybe I would say, Jesus, can you please help me make more money? And I, I think God would still say, why? He wants to get down to the heart of the matter. And, and maybe I would say, and if I had good motives, well, Lord, if I had just a little extra money, I'd be able to, to give more to your work you know, you've, you've shown me something uh, in my friend who I never saw before. And they're going off to missions. And I just see your hand at work in their life. And I believe that you are going to bear much fruit through this person. And they have some needs. I would love to be able to support them, Lord. I just, I just can't do it in the way that I want. Man, what do you think? Do you, do you see the difference in motives? It's the same question. God, I need more money. But, but I think God is asking, well, why do you want that? How are you going to use it? Is it for my glory or yours, right? Motives matter. So what we ask for and why we ask for it is of the utmost importance to God. Other places in the Bible agree that there are actually conditions to our prayers being answered. In Psalm 66, 18, it says, If I cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So if we cherish sin, if, if sin exists in our hearts and we just shrug it off saying, who cares? I don't care. I'm going to still pray to God. If we have that sort of mentality that we're so casual about our sin, God's going to say, all right, well, I'm going to tune you out until you realize that you need to tune me in and deal with the brokenness inside of you. First John 3 verse 21 and 29 says, dear friends, 
If our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive anything from him we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. There's three conditions there, right? If we don't ignore a conviction in our heart, if we keep God's commands, and if we do what pleases him, then we can be confident that we will receive what we ask from the Lord. There's three conditions there. And 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Another huge condition, right? Each one of those verses had the word if in it. So it says, if these conditions are met, then you can be confident the Lord will hear your prayer and answer your prayer and give you what you require. But man, without those things, I think that's why we're so frustrated sometimes. We pray and we pray and we pray, but instead of coming to God on his terms, we come to him on ours. We make him a cosmic vending machine instead of making him the Lord of our life. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. James explains this further in verses 4 to 6. He says, you adulterous people. Ooh, that's a pretty, pretty cutting remark for a pastor to make. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Do you, or do you think the scriptures say without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In short, these three verses talk about how we position ourselves either with or against God. The prophet Ezekiel, he referred to Israel, the nation of Israel, as adulterous during their times of rebellion against God. And James uses the same term, adulterous people, because Christians can be disloyal or unfaithful to God when we care more about what this world offers and what we can get from this world rather than what God has in mind for us. Making anything besides God the top priority in our lives, it says here that it actually makes us hostile towards God. That's what the word enmity means. It said, in the verse it said enmity against God. So if we want to translate that into a word that we would use a little bit more regularly in our culture, hostility against God. And I don't think any one of us want to be there. You know, I had a great discussion this week about exactly this concept with my good friend, James Clay. You know, we talked about the importance of focusing on the kingdom of God and how caring more about our life here on this, on this earth steals away from that focus. Right, James? Man, and, and, and it's such a good conversation to have. James is just one of our amazing elders or board here at our, at our church. And I'm so thankful for everyone who serves in that capacity. You know, God has given us life and he desires that we would be exclusively committed to him. No wonder he says, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Man, another one of the 10 commandments. James is obviously inspired by what he's been taught. So God has given us life and he desires that we would use it for him. He helps us to achieve this devotion to him through the power of the Holy Spirit that he places inside of us. God's Holy Spirit in us is a gift of grace because if God said, you better be faithful to me and here's my will for your life, figure it out on your own, we would have no chance. But with the Holy Spirit inside of us, we are equipped as 2 Peter 1 verse 3 to 11 says, to do everything possible to live a godly or divine life that is pleasing to the Lord. Man, is that not good or what? 
Jesus knows how frail we are. So he says, here's my Holy Spirit. Through that, I'm equipping you to do what would be impossible otherwise. When we are proud and self-serving, God stands against us. When we are humble and submit to God, yielding to the Holy Spirit's prompting in our lives, his grace flows over us. This point about God showing favor and grace to the humble reminds me of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple in Luke 18, 9 to 14. So these two men, they're both there in the temple and they're both praying. First, Jesus tells us about the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Oh, what what an amazing man, right? This guy, he is so full of himself that he's actually bragging before the holy God. What a a stupid move, right? If we have that sort of mentality coming to God, we put ourselves in such a bad position. And then Jesus contrasts him against the tax collector. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Here this tax collector understands that he has made mistakes. And he is so contrite and apologetic. He is sorry for these things. His prayer is an acknowledgement that he desperately needs God's mercy. And he cannot stand on his own. Ending this story, Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. When we think we have it all together... That is probably the most treacherous place to be, standing before our Lord. But when we realize just how much we need him, then we're in the place of understanding. And God can work with that. God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. So here, if if humility is a big key to living in God's grace, how do we live humbly? How do we do this humility thing consistently in all facets of our life? Well, I think Pastor James understands that his people were probably asking the same question. So between verses 7 and 10, he actually gives six short, concise tips for how to live with humility. If you're a note taker, here's your time to shine because these are the things that I would apply to my life and I hope you would consider doing the same. So from verses 7 to 10, here's six quick uh, instructions for how to live with humility. Number one, submit yourselves then to God. Boom, there it is. Submit to God. So submitting to God means taking an attitude of, Lord, not my will, not what I want, but I submit or I give in willingly to what you want to be done. I place myself under your authority and leadership. I don't ask you to do the things that I want to do, but I ask you what you want me to do. That's what it means to be submitted. To submit to God's will, we need to know what it is. To know God's will, the best way, the easiest way to find out God's will is to be very regular and consistent in his word. Without this, we are blind guides. And anyone who comes to us for advice, we then can't speak from this from a place of authority because it doesn't guide our life. We're not submitted to it. So how could we lead anyone else, right? So the word of God is so foundational for being submitted to God. 
It's like if my kids want to submit to me, they have to know, what are the rules of the house, Dad? Fill us in. Don't just get upset. Tell us how we're supposed to live. And, and I never get upset, do I, guys? Whoa, shoulder shrug. Okay, yeah, I'm human too. Yeah, but you know what? That's the thing. They need to know what the parameters are. Otherwise, how can they live within them, right? We need to know what God's parameters are. Otherwise, we can't live within them as well. Um, number two here from this, from this section of verses is uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So to live humbly with God means to resist the devil instead of giving in to him. Um, to disagree. To disagree with the intentions and plans of the devil is our purpose under God. We can't say, oh, I see what the devil's up to. doesn't sound so bad. I can, I can work with that. No, we, we resist it. We say, no, devil, I'm not into that. I am a child of God. I'm devoted to him. Ephesians 6.11 says that we are meant to put on the full armor of God so that we can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Right? So we have to align with Jesus that we might resist the devil. Submitting to God allows us to put on his armor. If we haven't submitted to him, we're not going to be able to walk in fellowship with him. And putting on his armor gives us the strength that we need and is required for us to stand against the schemes of Satan. When we resist the devil, we're more likely to be humble and obey Jesus as well. Number three, come near to God and he will come near to you. Anyone who thinks that... Anyone who seeks the Lord, sorry, will not be disappointed when we make an effort to walk with God, he absolutely responds and walks with us. God never says, actually, you need to get right first. You have to be perfect before you can be in fellowship with me. I don't want to have any part of someone who's a liar. I, you know, if you, if you do this or if you do that, if you think these kind of thoughts, don't even think about praying to me. I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in doing life with you. God actually says, if you humble yourself and say, God, I know I got a bunch of hangups in my life. I got a bunch of bad habits and things. But I know that I need you. God says, absolutely. Come to me for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Like that's the kind of God that we serve. We have to understand that when we come to God, it's a reciprocal effect. God comes to us. But what happens then if, if we don't draw near to God? If we don't spend time praying and in his word and, and abiding with him? Ooh, God's going to feel distant. I, I promise you that. It's going to be a struggle. But when we come near, he reciprocates and he comes near as well. So that abiding peace that we've talked about so often is just so important. Number four, James says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We all fall into, into sin when we act as people with a double mind, when we have two priorities instead of a singular focus. When we have our hearts split between pleasing God and pleasing ourselves, it's a disastrous way to live. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. And sometimes we make ourselves one of those masters. That's why we're told to purify our hearts, be purely or only dedicated to God and nothing else. To prevent double-mindedness, we need to set our heart on Jesus only. Jesus tells us to seek the kingdom of God above what? Above everything else. No, God, I love you and my family equally. You know how many families we have turned out, we, we bow down to our kids or our parents because, ah, you know, God, I, I'd love to be devoted to you, but my family really needs me. You know, we can still serve our family. We can still love our family. We can still help our family, but we can do it by making Jesus number one. That's actually the greatest help that we can give them. Last week, my kids, uh, we were talking about this as well. They, I've heard, they've heard them say, they've heard me say before that I love Jesus first and Karen second. 
And they know what I mean when I say that. They're not like, oh, dad, so you don't love us nearly as much as them? No. But God says that in the Bible, we're supposed to prioritize love for him. And that as a parent, the best thing I can do for my kids is loving my wife. Because I'm exemplifying then the love that God told a husband to give to his wife as he has given to the church. So we talk about these kind of things. And when we, when we understand that there's this singular focus, this singular love, nothing else comes between us and God and his commands. That's when we've become pure. That's when we've decided that we've made God the number one priority and nothing is going to stand against that. Number five, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This isn't exactly a cheery verse. I know some people can get that impression from it. But uh, it's very an important part of being submitted to God. Don't we naturally grieve our sin if we desire to be pure in our hearts towards God? If our heart purely desires, Lord Jesus, I want to live for you and only you, then any sin that comes into our life, this is actually going to be our natural response. We're going to say, oh, Lord, I am... I'm just heartbroken over what I just did there. I'm so sorry. That, that breaks my heart and, and makes me upset that I have caused something to possibly come between me and you. And it's okay for us to do this. Because when we, when we have a clear picture or a clear focus on God, the things that we once did carelessly now become things that we despise and we don't want to participate in. As we walk submitted to Jesus, his light reveals what was hidden in the dark corners of our heart. And we're not happy about it. Instead, we're distressed. And by grieving that sin, now we can deal with it appropriately. When we become aware of our transgressions, we can repent of them. We can turn away from sin and turn fully to God. So I'm very grateful, actually, when God points out sin in my life. It's not something to lament, say, oh, Lord, you're just not, you're not going gentle on me. It's actually because God longs to give us the pure life devoted to him that we are pursuing as well. So it's a good thing for us to grieve over sin so that we can repent of it and turn to Jesus. And finally, number six, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So this is a a kind of a, a synopsis. Humble yourself before the Lord. That's what all these steps are leading us to. And then it ends with a promise and God will lift us up. Okay. Once we're submitted to God, we can trust that the Lord is going to lift us up. Instead of the proud exalting themselves and being humbled, we humble ourselves and the Lord exalts us. What a glorious thing. You know, it, it's one of those things when we, can, when we brag on ourselves, when we're proud and arrogant and we boost ourselves up, you know how little satisfaction we actually get from that? Because all we're doing is we're doing it in order that someone else is going to say, wow, you're right, Jeff, you are really amazing, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? They don't care because... It's, it sounds so arrogant. It comes from a place of such hollowness. But when I say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm a sinner and I, I just want to be devoted to you. I just want to focus my whole life on you. And then in that moment of humility, God says, yeah, Jeff, I see your heart. And I love you. I love that you're doing that. I love that that's what you desire. Come and walk with me. Stand to your feet. Let's walk hand in hand down this road of life. Isn't that good when God lifts us up? Instead of us lifting up ourselves, it's so much more gratifying. Okay, so that's kind of the first part of this section. There's two more verses here. We're going to end up with these. James, it seems like if you read this, if you get to verse 11, it feels like James just drastically changes his tone. And it's like, whoa, are we talking about the same things here, James? Or did you fall asleep and forgot where you were when you were writing this letter? But he says here in verse 11, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them or or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. 
It's a lot of stuff here in one verse. It almost seems like this verse is unrelated, but there's something interesting. There's a connection between verse 7 and this verse that we just read here in verse 11. In verse 7, we're told to resist the devil. And did you know that the word devil in Greek means slanderer? And here we're told to not slander one another. A unique connection. In other words, don't do the work of the devil by slandering or speaking poorly against a fellow Christian. Once again, we have to understand that Satan wants to infiltrate the church and cause us to turn against one another. Disunity, right? He wants to cause division to erupt with fighting and quarreling like James led with at the beginning of this chapter. Slandering a brother or sister in Christ is the work of Satan. He tries to use you and me to ruin God's church because it's way easier to to poison someone within than to have someone from without come against the church. On top of that, when we slander a fellow Christian, we have judged them by our standards instead of through the word of God. They are under God's law just like we are. And it's not our place to take the position of God and judge our brothers and sisters. When we slander someone, that's exactly what we've done. And then verse 12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So here once again, we must humbly submit ourselves to Jesus. He is our final authority. And James is just reminding us, guys, stop your bickering and arguing. It's really about Jesus. Are you looking at him or are you just looking at how you can win an argument? Are you submitted to his judgment, to his law, or are you just submitted to the flesh? That's why this whole thing actually makes perfect sense. I find this passage that we've looked at today to be super encouraging. James dearly loves Jesus, and because of that, he absolutely loves Jesus' church as well. He has helped us to understand that fighting and quarreling are a threat to the unity that we're meant to pursue together here in the church. But the solution is clear. As we submit to God personally, our desires change. Our motives change and our allegiance to Christ is strengthened. Our life becomes less about us being right and more about us living humbly to God and in unity with our brothers and sisters. You know, I I just love so much that we we find practical tips and that James says, hey, these these are problems that exist in the church. And you know, I don't think that our church has an issue with quarreling and fighting. But the beautiful thing is today that after looking at this passage, we can now safeguard against it so that we don't go to that place. Isn't that marvelous? That even, even if we're not saying that this passage pertains immediately to something that we're struggling with, we still know that it's practical and it works in all the instances that we could face down the road. So we're going we're gonna to sing a song now. I can't remember, honestly, if we've sung this one here at CFC or not. But it's called, Give Us Clean Hands. And you know, friends, I would encourage you to sing this with us as a prayer. If there's anything in your heart that as we are reading through James 4, 1 to 12 today that is, that is convicting you at all, if the Holy Spirit is saying, huh, you know, there's this one little area here that we really need to be careful of. Because if this gets out of hand, that's something that we're talking about today that could cause disunity. Let's just pray this together as a unified church that God would give us clean hands, clean heart, so that we can live purely devoted to Jesus.